Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Alrighty. Let's get back into the end of chapter 15 of Dracula. Now that everybody's lunched at Piccadilly. First, let's have a sip of this reading tea. I'm reading a little early in the day for wine, but, you know, work is over, but the evening has not yet arrived. And every now and then I feel like I have to live up to the standards of good behavior just to remind myself that I can. Mmm. Well, that's good tea. It's a fresh batch. And it demonstrates that <clears throat> the tea is just as valid a coping mechanism as anything else. Okay. Note left by Van Helsing in his portmanteau, Berkeley Hotel, directed to John Seward, M.D., not delivered. 27 September. Friend John, I write this in case anything should happen. I go alone to watch in that churchyard. It pleases me that the undead, Miss Lucy, shall not leave tonight, that so on the morrow night she may be more eager. Therefore I shall fix some things she like not, garlic and a crucifix, and so seal up the door of the tomb. She is young as undead and will heed. Moreover, these are only to prevent her from coming out. They may not prevail on her wanting to get in. For then the undead is desperate, and must find the line of least resistance, whatsoever it may be. I shall be at hand all the night from sunset till after the sunrise, and if there be aught that may be learned, I shall learn it. For Miss Lucy, or from her, I have no fear, but that other to whom is there that she is undead, he have now the power to seek her tomb and find shelter. He is cunning as I know from Mr. Jonathan, and from the way that all along he have fooled us when he played with us for Miss Lucy's life, and we lost. And in many ways the undead are strong. He have always the strength in his hand of twenty men. Even we four who gave our strength to Miss Lucy, it also is all to him. Besides, he can summon his wolf, and I know not what. So if it be that he come thither on this night, he shall find me. But none other shall until it be too late. But it may be that he will not attempt the place. There is no reason why he should. His hunting ground is more full of game than the churchyard where the undead woman sleep, and the, old, and the one old man watch. Therefore I write this in case. Take the papers that are with this, the diaries of Harker and the rest, and read them, and then find this great undead and cut off his head and burn his heart or drive a stake through it, so that the world may rest from him. 
And if it be so, farewell. Van Helsing. Dr. Seward's Diary, 28th September. It is wonderful what a good night's sleep will do for one. Yesterday I was almost willing to accept Van Helsing's monstrous ideas, but now they seem to start out lurid before me as outrages on common sense. I have no doubt that he believes it all. I wonder if his mind can have become in any way unhinged. Surely there must be some rational explanation of all these mysterious things. Is it possible that the professor can have done it himself? He's so abnormally clever that if he went off his head, he would carry out his intent with regard to some fixed idea in a wonderful way. I'm loath to think it, and indeed it would be almost as great a marvel as the other to find that Van Helsing was mad. But anyhow, I shall watch him carefully. I may get some light on the mystery. 29 September, morning. Last night, at a little before ten o'clock, Arthur and Quincy came into Van Helsing's room. He told us all that he wanted what he, he told us all that he wanted us to do, but especially addressing himself to Arthur, as if all our wills were centered in his. He began by saying that he hoped we would all come with him too, for he said there is a grave duty to be done there. You were doubtless surprised at my letter. This query was directly addressed to Lord Godalming. I was. It rather upset me for a bit. There has been so much trouble around my house of late that I could do without any more. I have been curious, too, as to what you mean. Quincy and I talked it over, but the more we talked, the more puzzled we got. Till now I can say for myself that I am about up a tree as to any meaning about anything. Me too, said Quincy Morris laconically. Oh, said the professor, then you are nearer the beginning, both of you, than friend John here, who has to go a long way back before he can even get so far as to begin. It was evident that he recognized my return to my old doubting frame of mind without my saying a word. Then, turning to the other two, he said with intense gravity, I want your permission to do what I think is good this night. It is, I know, much to ask, and when you know what it is I propose to do, you will know, and only then, how much. Therefore, may I ask that you promise me in the dark, so that afterwards, though you may be angry with me for a time, I must not disguise for myself the possibility that such may be. You shall not blame yourselves for anything. That's frank, anyhow, broke in Quincy. I'll answer for the professor. I don't quite see his drift, but I swear he's honest, and that's good enough for me. I thank you, sir, said Van Helsing proudly. I have done myself the honor of counting you one trusting friend, and such endorsement is dear to me. He held out a hand, which Quincy took. Then Arthur spoke out. Dr. Van Helsing, I don't quite like to buy a pig and a poke, as they say in Scotland, and if it be anything in which my honor as a gentleman or my faith as a Christian is concerned, I cannot make such a promise. If you can assure me that what you intend does not violate either of those two, then I give my consent at once, though for the life of me I cannot understand what you are driving at. I accept your limitation, said Van Helsing, and all I ask of you is that you feel it necessary to condemn any act of mine, you will first consider it well, and be satisfied that it does not violate your reservations. Agreed, said Arthur, that is only fair. And now that the poor parlors are over, may I ask what it is we are to do? I want you to come with me, and to come in secret, to the churchyard at Kingstead. Arthur's face fell as he said in an amazed sort of way, 
where poor Lucy is buried? The professor bowed. Arthur went on. And when there? To enter the tomb. Arthur stood up. Professor, are you in earnest? Or it is some monstrous joke? Pardon me, I see that you are in earnest. He sat down again, but I could see that he sat firmly and proudly, as one who is on his dignity. There was silence until he asked again, And when in the tomb? To open the coffin. This is too much, he said angrily, rising again. I am willing to be patient in all things that are reasonable, but in this, this desecration of the grave, of one who... He fairly choked with indignation. The professor looked pityingly at him. If I could spare you one pang, my poor friend, he said, God knows I would. But this night our feet must tread in thorny paths, or later, and forever, the feet you love must walk in paths of flame. Arthur looked up with set white face and said, Take care, sir, take care. Would it not be well to hear what I have to say, said Van Helsing, and then you will at least know the limit of my purpose. Shall I go on? That's fair enough, broke in Morris. After a pause, Van Helsing went on, evidently with great effort. Miss Lucy is dead, is it not so? Yes. Then there can be no wrong to her. But if she be not dead... Arthur jumped to his feet. Good God, he cried, what do you mean? Has there been any mistake? Has she been buried alive? He groaned in anguish that, can, that not even hope could soften. I did not say she was alive, my child. I did not think it. I go no further than to say that she might be undead. Undead, not alive. What do you mean? Is this all a nightmare or what is it? There are mysteries which men can only guess at, which age by age they may solve only in part. Believe me, we are now on the verge of one, but I have not done. May I cut off the head of dead Miss Lucy? Heavens and earth, no, cried Arthur in a storm of passion. Not for the wide world will I consent to any mutilation of her dead body. Dr. Van Helsing, you try me too far. What have I done to you that you should torture me so? What did that poor sweet girl do that you should want to cast such dishonor on her grave? Are you mad that speak such things? Or am I mad to listen to them? Don't dare to think more of such a desecration. I shall not give my consent to anything you do. I have a duty to do in protecting her grave from outrage, and by God I shall do it. Van Helsing rose up from where he had all the time been seated, and said gravely and sternly, My lord God Al my lord God Alming, my lord God Alming, I too have a duty to do, a duty to others, a duty to you, a duty to the dead, and by God I shall do it. All I ask you now is that you come with me, that you look and listen, and if when later I make the same request you do not be more eager for its fulfillment even than I am, then then I shall do my duty wherever it may seem to me. And then to follow of your lordship's wishes, I shall hold myself at your disposal to render an account to you when and where you will. His voice broke a little, and he went on with a voice full of pity. But I beseech you do not go forth in anger with me, and a long life of acts which were not pleasant to do, and which sometimes did wring my heart. I have never had so heavy a task as now. Believe me that if the time comes for you to change your mind towards me, one look from you will wipe away all this so sad hour, for I would do what a man can to save you from sorrow. Just think. 
For why should I give myself so much of labor and so much of sorrow? I have come here from my own land to do what I can of good, at the first to please my friend John, and then to help a sweet young lady, whom too I came to love. For her, I am ashamed to say so much, but I say it in kindness. I gave what you gave, the blood of my veins. I gave it, I, who was not, like you, her lover, but only her physician and her friend. I gave to her my nights and days, before death, after death. And if my death can do her good even now, when she is the dead, undead, she shall have it freely. He said this with a very grave, sweet pride, and Arthur was much affected by it. He took the old man's hand and said in a broken voice, Oh, it is hard to think of it, and I cannot understand. But at least I shall go with you and wait. Chapter 16 Dr. Seward's Diary Continued It was just a quarter before twelve o'clock when we got into the churchyard over the low wall. The night was dark, with occasional gleams of moonlight between the rents of the heavy clouds that scudded across the sky. We all kept somehow close together, with Van Helsing slightly in front as he led the way. When we had come close to the tomb, I looked well at Arthur, for I feared that the proximity to a place laden with so sorrowful a memory would upset him. But he bore himself well. I took it that the very mystery of the proceeding was in some way a counteractant to his grief. The professor unlocked the door, and seeing a natural hesitation amongst us for various reasons, solved the difficulty by entering first himself. The rest of us followed, and he closed the door. He then lit a dark lantern and pointed to the coffin. Arthur stepped forward hesitatingly. Van Helsing said to me, "'You were with me here yesterday. Was the body of Miss Lucy in that coffin?' "'It was.' The professor turned to the rest, saying, you hear, and yet there is no one who does not believe with me. He took his screwdriver and again took off the lid of the coffin. Arthur looked on, very pale but silent. When the lid was removed, he stepped forward. He evidently did not know that there was a leaden coffin, or at any rate had not thought of it. When he saw the rent in the lead, the blood rushed to his face for an instant, but as quickly fell away again, so that he remained of a ghastly whiteness. He was still silent. Van Helsing forced back the leaden flange, and we all looked in and recoiled. The coffin was empty. For several minutes, no one spoke a word. The silence was broken by Quincy Morris. Professor, I answered for you. Your word is all I want. I wouldn't ask such a thing ordinarily. I wouldn't so dishonor you as to imply a doubt. But this is a mystery that goes beyond any honor or dishonor. Is this your doing? I swear to you by all that I hold sacred that I have not removed nor touched her. What happened was this. Two nights ago, my friend Seward and I came here, with good purpose, believe me. I opened that coffin, which was then sealed up, and we found it, as now, empty. We then waited and saw something white come through the trees. The next day we came here in daytime, and she lay there. Did she not, friend John? Yes. That night we were just in time. One more so small child was missing, and we find it, thank God, unharmed amongst the graves. Yesterday I came here before sundown, for at sundown the undead can move. I waited here all the night till the sun rose, but I saw nothing. It was most probable that it was because I had laid over the clamps of those doors garlic, which the undead cannot bear, and other things which they shun. Last night there was no exodus, 
So tonight, before the sundown, I took away my garlic and other things, and so it is we find this coffin empty. But bear with me. So far there is much that is strange. Wait you with me outside, unseen and unheard, and things much stranger are yet to be. So, here he shut the dark side slide of his lantern. Now to the outside. He opened the door and we filed out, his coming last and locking the door behind him. Oh, but it seemed fresh and pure in the night air after the terror of that vault. How sweet it was to see the clouds race by, and the passing gleams of the moonlight between the scudding clouds crossing and passing, like the gladness and sorrow of a man's life. How sweet it was to breathe the fresh air that had no taint of death and decay. How humanizing to see the red light of the sky beyond the hill, and to hear far away the muffled roar that marks the life of a great city. Each in his own way was solemn and overcome. Arthur was silent and was, I could see, striving to grasp the purpose and the inner meaning of the mystery. I was myself tolerably patient and half inclined again to throw aside doubt and to accept Van Helsing's conclusions. Quincy Morris was phlegmatic in the way of a man who accepts all things and accepts them in the spirit of cool bravery with hazard of all he has to stake. Not being able to smoke, he cut himself a good-sized plug of tobacco and began to chew. As to Van Helsing, he was employed in a definite way. First, he took from his bag a mass of what looked like thin, wafer-like biscuit, which was carefully rolled up in a white napkin. Next, he took out a double handful of some whitish stuff, like dough or putty. He crumbled the wafer up fine and worked it into the mass between his hands. This he then took, and rolling it into thin strips, began to lay them into the crevices between the door and its setting in the tomb. I was somewhat puzzled at this, and being close, asked him what it was he was doing. Arthur and Quincy drew near also, as they too were curious. He answered, I am closing the tomb so that the undead may not enter. And is that stuff you have put there going to do it? asked Quincy. Great Scott, is this a game? It is. What is that which you are using? This time the question was by Arthur. Van Helsing reverently lifted his hat as he answered, The host. I brought it from Amsterdam. I have an indulgence. It was an answer that appalled the most skeptical of us, and we felt individually that in the presence of such earnest purpose as the professor's, a purpose which could thus use the to him most sacred of things, it was impossible to distrust. In respectful silence, we took the places assigned to us close round the tomb, but hidden from the sight of anyone approaching. I pitied the others, especially Arthur. I had myself been apprenticed by my former visits to this watching horror, and yet I, who had up to an hour ago repudiated the proofs, felt my heart sink within me. Never did tombs look so ghastly white. Never did cypress, or you, or juniper, so seem the embodiment of funereal gloom. Never did tree or grass wave or rustle so ominously. Never did bow creak so mysteriously. And never did the faraway howling of dogs send such a woeful presage through the night. Oh, that's an excellent place to stop. Ah, I really have much to say about that section, except, again, like it strikes me that in this, and if you're following the Patreon version of Social Distance Radio, uh, Social Distancing Radio, again, Stoker is like 
really good at drawing these non-toxic friendships between men. You know, it's just like they trust each other and they have their doubts and everything seems a little bit unbelievable, to say the very least, and they're incredulous. And they occasionally suspect each other of being completely insane. And at the same time, they really trust each other. And that trust is a strength rather than a weakness, rather than a vulnerability. It's not something that is taken advantage of in them. It's something that helps propel the storyline along. I find that so interesting. Anyway, uh, I also really love this because it reminds me of the scenes of the graveyard digger, the grave digger rather from uh, Stephen King's Salem's Lot, which I just read last autumn and really loved. So anyway, thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.